Well, if you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me to uh, 1 John chapter 2. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 11. And if you are a guest this morning, or perhaps you're joining us online for the first time, we've been in a study through the book of 1 John. We began that uh, the first Sunday in October. But 1 John is such an important little book, especially as it relates to the issue of assurance in the life of a believer. It's critical for you to live with the assurance that you know God because this is the key to joy and confidence in life. Fellowship with God, this is connected to joy. Joy is connected to knowing that you know God. And in this little letter, the Apostle John presents us with three tests by which you and I may discern whether or not we truly come to know the Lord. And the first test is a doctrinal test or theological test. Uh, do we believe that Jesus is the Son of God who's come in the flesh? And according to the message of John, those who would deny the deity and the humanity of Jesus fail the test. And he's going to emphasize this later on in chapter 2. A second test that John presents believers with is the moral test or the ethical test. Do we obey the commands of God in his word? And we saw this explained in the first six verses of chapter 2. It's not the one who says he knows God, but the one who keeps his word. And John says that true knowledge of God will show up through a pattern of consistent obedience in the life of a believer. Now the third test is the social test. And this is the test that we really come to here in the verses that we're going to read uh, in just a moment. Do we love others the way that God has loved us in Jesus Christ? And if so, this serves as evidence that we've truly come to know the Lord. And so these tests are for the sake of assurance in the life of a, the believer. And John keeps coming back to these tests over and over again throughout the five chapters of 1 John. And his writing style is circular. And he'll make an argument, and he'll come back to that argument, and he does this for five straight chapters. And so the message of 1 John, David Allen says it's important because it really presents us with the foundational nature of truth and love within the context of the local church. The church ought to be characterized by truth. The church is the pillar and ground of truth. And yet, at the same time, there ought to be the atmosphere of love in the local church. And so John's message, it's, it's a theological message because it presents the truth as it's held in contrast to that which is false, but it's also a practical message because it describes how love serves as a distinguishing characteristic of the people of God. And according to the apostle, a Christian is someone who embraces the truth of God and expresses the love of God. The love of God that's experienced through faith in Jesus Christ, this is something that's life-changing, and where it has been experienced, it will result in an expression of love for other people. 
And nowhere is this any more clearly seen than in what John tells us here, beginning with verse number 7. So if you've got your place there, 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. Notice the Bible says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I want to speak from this subject this morning, the new commandment. You'll notice in this passage, John says he's not writing anything new, but in a sense, it is new. It's old in the sense that this command to love one another uh, goes all the way back into the Old Testament, the giving of the law. And yet at the same time, it's new when it's seen in the light of what God has done in the person of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've already told you this, but the word that John uses for love over and over again in these chapters, it's that word agape, which is a word used in the New Testament, throughout the New Testament, to describe the unconditional nature of God's love. Uh, for the writers of the New Testament, this idea of God loving imperfect people in a perfect way was something so radical, something so new, uh, that really a new word had to be invented just to describe it. J.I. Packer has pointed out that the Greek word agape, agape love, uh, this seems to have been a Christian in, invention, uh, a new word for a new thing, because apart from about 20 occurrences in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this was a non-existent word before the New Testament where agape shows up more than 200 times throughout the pages of the New Testament. Now, here's the thing. English, we have one word for love. Uh, we use the same word love. I, I can say in, I love honey-baked ham. And I ate a lot of it this week. And then I can turn right around and say, I love my children. I love my wife. I love my family. I love my church family. So in one sense, I can say I love ham. In another sense, I can say I love my kids. Now, you know that the love that I have for my kids is completely radically different, far deeper, far richer, far more powerful and meaningful than the love I have for honey-baked ham. But we got one word in English to describe or that we use love. Well, in the Greek language, there were actually several words that are often translated as love. Uh, you've got the word eros, which was descriptive of uh, physical love or erotic love. We get the word erotic. It describes sensual love. And interestingly enough, that word's not used in the New Testament, connected with love. You compare that to our culture, that seems to be the only way that our culture understands love. But that's not how the New Testament understands love. 
There's the word phileo. Uh, the word Philadelphia comes from this particular word. It describes the love that one has for a brother, a brotherly love. There's storge. Storge describes a familial type of love, a family bond. But the word that's used throughout the New Testament, descriptive of the love of God for us, is this word agape. And at the same time, it's also the same word that's used to describe the kind of love that believers are to have for each other. The type of love that we're to demonstrate in our relationships with one another. It's this supernatural kind of love. It's not the love that comes natural to us. But this is the love of God that's experienced. It's the love of God that's been poured out into our hearts and lives through the Holy Spirit. And it's this same love that we're to then demonstrate to others in our relationships. So if you go through all five chapters of 1 John, you'll discover that he uses this word agape no less than 45 times. And he's primarily speaking about three kinds of love. God's love for us, and then our love for God, and then the love that we have for one another. And so this concept of love is so important to John that he gives three major sections in his letter uh, to address this subject. Now, here in this second chapter, he says that love, this is evidence of our fellowship with God as believers. The fact that we've come to experience the love of God personally in our life, uh, the proof will be in the expression of that love in our lives for one another as God's people. You get into chapter 3, John says that love is the proof of our sonship, that we've been born into the family of God. And then in chapter 4, he's going to trace the source of this river of love all the way back to its divine fountainhead where he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. God is love. But in this passage here, he notice he's saying that this command to love, it's old and yet it's new. It's new in the light of what God has done in the person of his own son. And so this new commandment, John mentions at least three ways the command to love one another is new. Which, by the way, this goes back to something that Jesus said in John chapter 13. And, and, and John writes this in his gospel where Jesus tells his disciples, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And then he builds on that and he says, Just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. Did you catch that? Jesus said, just in the same way that he's loved his disciples, his disciples are to love one another. And so the question then that I should ask myself is this question, am I loving my brothers and my sisters in the same way in which I've been loved by Jesus Christ? Because that's the measure of love. And Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. So John mentions three ways that this command to love one another is new. Number one, notice that he says that it's new in principle. Uh, this is his point in verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning and this old commandment is the word that you have heard. Now notice he's saying there in verse 7, he's referring to believers as beloved. 
And this is the first of at least six times in the book that he refers to believers as beloved. Uh, He does this in 3 John, even though it only is made up of 15 verses. In that little book, he refers to believers as beloved no less than five times. So here he is practicing what he's preaching. He's calling upon believers to express love in in terms of their relationships with one another, but he's not calling upon them to do something that he himself is not already doing and modeling before their watching eyes. So here you have this old apostle. He's affectionately and tenderly referring to his readers as those who are beloved. They're loved by God. He loves them as the apostle, as their pastor and shepherd. And by the way, that's what a personal experience with the love of God will do in your life. It will change you. It'll move you. Uh, Just like it did for John earlier in his life. We know from the New Testament that the apostle John was, was proud. He was a proud fisherman. He had been full of bravado. I mean, on one occasion, he and his brother James were ready to call down fire from heaven on, on a group of people, which led the Lord to give them this nickname, Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. So lest you think that the apostle John is, is sort of this quiet, milk toast kind of a man, realize that here's a guy who at one point in his life was so bold and brash in his dealings with people that he was ready to call down fire on their heads. But now through years of walking with God, through the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit within him, listen to how this old apostle, he's been tenderized by the years He's still bold, he's still courageous, he's still committed to truth, but his bravado and his courage is tempered with wisdom and love, and that only came through the years of walking with Jesus. All throughout his gospel, he'll refer to himself not by name, but as the the disciple whom Jesus loved. That wasn't a sign of arrogance on his part when he writes that. It's just simply evidence that John was overwhelmed by this thought that he's loved by God. And so now he's addressing the reader as those who are loved by God, those who have been brought into a family, those who are beloved. And he says, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. And so there in verse 7, the verses that follow, John's going to use this word commandment four times. And notice that the word is singular, compared to the way that he used it in the previous verses where he referred to those who keep the commandments, plural. So here he's sort of zeroing in on one overarching command, this command to love, and he's showing how it's central to the Christian life. The commandment involves loving our brothers and sisters. That's what he's referring to when he says, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had all along. In other words, he's saying, I'm not telling you anything that you've not already heard. Now, maybe you read this and you scratch your head as John tells us that he's not writing a new commandment. But then he turns right around in verse 8 and says that it is a new commandment. And someone says, well, what is it exactly that he's saying? What's the point that he's making? Well, in the Greek language of the New Testament, there are at least two different words for new. 
And one of those words uh, referred to something new in time, as in something that up until that point had never before existed. The other term was used to refer to something new in quality, as in something that had been around for a long time, but it still had fresh relevance. And that's the word that John is using here. This is how he's using this word new to refer to this command to love. It's old in the sense that it was given way back in the Old Testament, but at the same time, it's new because we now see it in the light of Jesus Christ who gives it fresh relevance. You might be able to think of the sun as somewhat of an illustration of this, even though the sun is something that is old, it goes all the way back to creation. The sunrise this morning was fresh as a new day dawned. Isn't it an amazing thing? The sun, as old as it is, yet this morning we experienced the freshness of a new day, the freshness of a new sunrise. Well, in a similar way, that's what John is saying here. This command to love, it's as old as time itself, but the principle is just as fresh, just as new as the morning sunrise which means it never goes out of style, it never becomes unfashionable, it never loses its sense of relevance, but it's always relevant, which by the way, God's word is always relevant. God's word is always fresh. Uh, in principle, it's always new. Isaiah says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. People say, well, the issue now is that the Bible is just out of step with the times. No, listen to me. The times are out of step with the Bible because the Bible is always fresh. The Bible is always relevant. God's commands are always new and relevant and fresh, and especially this new commandment to love one another that John's referring to here. And he uses this phrase, from the beginning, there in verse number 7. He says this new commandment, it's the old commandment that we've had from the beginning. Well, what's the beginning that he's referring to? Well, maybe this is a reference to the beginning of their Christian experience. Maybe he's referring back to the moment that his readers became Christians, the moment they came to faith in Jesus Christ, when they came to know God through faith in Jesus, their life began. Or it could refer to the beginning of the Lord's own ministry and the gospel of the kingdom that he began to preach. Or it could refer back to the beginning of creation and God's original purpose for mankind. God created humanity and placed them in a perfect garden environment. He created them to live in the light of his love and to live in a harmonious relationship with one another. And we know that sin affected all of that. Or beginning could refer to the giving of the law, where God gave his people his law there at Mount Sinai. So the commandment is old in the sense that it has its roots in the law of God. And I think that's what John is saying here in verse number 7. This goes all the way back to the revelation of God's law as he gave it through Moses. Deuteronomy 6, 5 you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Leviticus 19, verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So this, this is the old commandment. In fact, this is what Jesus later is going to say in Mark chapter 12 uh, when there's 
a certain scribe who asks him the question, what's the most important command in the, in the scriptures? And Jesus says the most important commandment is this one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And then he says the second is likened to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says this pretty much sums up the intent behind the whole law. Love God and love people. Love God and love those who were made in his image. And so it's old because this is the commandment that's foundational as far as the law is concerned. But at the same time, this is a new commandment because it's given its fullest, freshest meaning in the light of Jesus Christ. So the point that John is making in this text is that this command to love one another, it's, it's foundational to the Christian faith. It's not an appendix. It's not an add-on. It's not something that eventually we'll get around to doing, that kind of thing. No, he says that love is a foundational principle that goes with the claim to be a Christian. And the Apostle Paul makes the same point in Romans chapter 13. He says, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. He says the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and all the other commandments, he says they're summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because love does no wrong to a neighbor, love is the fulfilling of the law. You say, well, how does this play out in real time? Well, if you truly love God, you're going to love your neighbor. And love for your neighbor is evidence that you love God. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to want to steal from your neighbor. You're not going to want to take from your neighbor what doesn't belong to you but belongs to your neighbor. If you love your neighbor, you won't commit adultery with their spouse. If you love their, your neighbor, you won't covet what they have. You won't bear false witness against your neighbor. Because if you love your neighbor, all the other commandments are going to fall into place. And that's why Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God and then to love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's sort of the context behind what John is saying here. The new commandment, it's, it's new in terms of principle. It's always fresh. It always applies. It never goes out of style. It's always relevant. It's always bearing and binding upon my life and your life as a follower of Jesus. But then notice, secondly, he says that this new commandment, it's, it's new in terms of precedent. Not simply principle, but the precedent that's been established. And he says there in verse 8, he says, at the same time, this is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. Now listen to this. Which is true in him, that is Christ, it's true in Christ and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So the new commandment is new in precedent. Uh, we've been given a pattern. We've been given an example. We've been given a precedent of what love for others really looks like. That's what John is saying here in verse number 8. It's true in him and in you. In him, this is Jesus Christ, his life. Uh, his example has established a precedent. Now, those of you, you're familiar with the legal world. Some of you come from the legal background. I see Mike Newby sitting back there. 
in the legal world, a precedent is a rule that's established in a previous case that's either binding or persuasive on subsequent cases with similar issues. For example, the U.S. Supreme Court relies upon precedent from earlier rulings uh, to provide them with some example to guide them in cases that they're deciding upon. They look back and see if there's any precedent in the past, previous rulings. Well, if you want to know what this looks like in the, in the believer's life, John is saying that there's a precedent that's been established in the life of Jesus. The greatest example, the greatest definition of love is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. You want to know what love is all about? Then you don't have to look any further than the Lord's own life. Because he is love incarnate. He is love personified. I mean, have you ever just been blown away as you've read through the Gospels and paid attention to the kinds of people that Jesus loved? You had Mary Magdalene with her background, a past, the scarlet letter that she had been branded with by society. At the same time, you had the rich young ruler You had Nicodemus, who was a proud Pharisee who came to Jesus by night. I heard Mac Brunson preach a sermon one time called Nick at Night about Nicodemus. Why did he come to him at night? It was because he was, he didn't want to have all the religious crowd talking about him. He comes at night because there was a price to pay. He didn't want to be seen with Jesus in the day. So I come to him at night. That's what Nicodemus did. And then what about Zacchaeus? You know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. The man who climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Well, he wasn't just a wee little man. The Bible says he was a greedy, greedy man. He'd been a tax collector who made his living off scheming and taking from others. John chapter 4, you've got the woman at the well of Samaria that Jesus goes out of his way to talk to that was against the social custom of the day. We frequently read of where Jesus healed lepers. He gave sight to the blind. He took time for children, all of whom were among the lowliest, least respectable members of society, and yet Jesus loved them all. Wealthy, poor, Whether you were from the aristocracy or whether you were common, Jew, Gentile, Jesus loved people. And everything in his life testified to love. Above it all, he loved his father and demonstrated love and devotion and perfect obedience to his father in heaven. And so Jesus lived love before the eyes of people. And this goes all the way up to his own death. Even in the hours before his death and his suffering, Before his crucifixion, Jesus says to his disciples, John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That perhaps is what John is referring to here in 1 John when he's referring to the new commandment. This new commandment, love one another in the same way that Jesus has loved us. This is the precedent that's been established. Now listen to me. Jesus did not say, everyone will know you're my disciples by your doctrinal precision. 
He didn't say, everyone will know you're my disciples by your knowledge. And for the record, I'm all for doctrinal precision and knowledge of God. Well, we, we, listen, knowledge of the truth. John isn't, he's not compromising, he's not minimizing knowledge of the truth in what he's saying here. That Jesus did not minimize knowledge of the truth or the importance of the truth when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And yet at the same time, he says that love, loving people the way that he has loved us, this will be the hallmark to the world that we truly belong to him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. These Gnostic influencers whom John is warning his readers about, they were enamored with pseudo-wisdom and knowledge, and they wanted to impress other people with their intellect. And for them, love was a secondary matter. But now John comes along, and John is saying, let me tell you something. Love is not a secondary matter. Love is a primary matter. Knowledge of the truth, we never need to take that for granted. Knowledge of the truth never needs to be discounted. But the precedent, the bar, the metric, the standard for our relationships with one another in this family of faith, known as the church, it's the love that Jesus demonstrated for his disciples. We're to love one another the very same way that he loved his disciples. And you want to know what that looks like tangibly, Go back earlier in John chapter 13 and read it for yourself. John 13 verse 1 says this, Having loved his own, he loved them all the way to the end. Some translations say it this way, Having loved his own, he loved them to the uttermost. Now you think about that. You think about who that's referring to. You think about his disciples. They weren't necessarily a lovable group of men. But they were men, each one of whom had weaknesses, flaws, failures. One person said, if you were going to pick 12 men to be your disciples, you wouldn't have picked those guys. You've got impulsive Peter, who's always speaking out of turn, always opening his mouth before he's thought through it. Sometimes he's even contradicting what Jesus himself has said. When Jesus needed Peter the most, what did Peter do? He denied that he even knew Jesus. And yet every time that Jesus looked at Peter, it was through eyes of love and compassion. And then you've got Thomas, the doubter, who wouldn't believe the resurrection unless he had empirical evidence. You've got Judas, the traitor, who betrays Jesus, and yet Jesus loves even Judas. Having omniscience and perfect wisdom, knowing what Judas would do, he didn't treat Judas any differently than the rest of the group. And so all of these men with their weaknesses, their disagreements, their failures to follow Jesus fully to the end, the text says that Jesus loved his own who were in the world and he loved them all the way up until the end. And imagine how they must have felt that night when later on in John 13, the text says that Jesus demonstrates his love for this group of unlovable men by getting down on his knees, his hands, and his feet, and he washes their feet. I know you've heard the story. 
And in your mind, you can, quick, you, you, can, you can think about that and then move on. But if you just stop and pause and think about what's going on there in the upper room, when you've got the Lord of the universe, the one who flung the stars into space, the one who calls them by name, the one who knows everything there is to know, the one who's upholding all things by the word of his power, here he is on his knees washing the dirty, stinking, filthy feet of his disciples who just earlier they'd been arguing among themselves who was the best who was the greatest who was worthy what does the son of God do he demonstrates agape love by humbling himself and washing their feet listen to me love it's not an issue of how many people serve you but it's more an issue of how many people do you serve? Am I serving? Love always does. In a society where it becomes so easy, and especially in a, cult- a church culture, when it becomes so easy to merely say, I love, we need to remember that the true test of our love, it's not so much what we say, but what we do. And whether or not we're serving I have more to say, but I've got to go on. I've got to bring this to a close. This new commandment, it's new in principle. It's new in precedent. But then notice last, it's new in practice. And and John really gets to the heart of the issue here in verse 9. And he says, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother, he's still in darkness. Because whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. So this idea in of loving, love is evidence that a person has been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It's evident that the evidence that there's been a genuine transformation within the heart of this person. And if a person is hates his brother, John says if he hates his brother, it doesn't matter what he says, he's still in darkness. And the word hate there. It's a present tense word that speaks of a deep-seated animosity. An animosity that someone has towards someone else for whatever reason. If that deep-seated animosity is present, anyone hates his brother. It's habitual action here that the word speaks of. This person's still in darkness no matter what he or she says because you can't have hate and love in your heart at the same time. Now, folks, let me tell you, this really hits home to where we live because our relationships with each other, they're messy at times, aren't they? Our relationships. We have disagreements over a variety of issues, and this is even within the context of the church, within the context of our own homes, Our circle of influence, it's easy for us to say things, do things, act in ways that sometimes hurt other people, whether intentionally or unintentionally. But based upon what John is saying here, when two Christians disagree with one another, love within them compels them to work it out. They can't live with just this persistent, deep-seated animosity toward one another. And if you're not careful, 
The hurt that you've experienced or the anger that you have for a particular person, it can turn into resentment that can give birth to the kind of hatred in your heart that John is referring to here. And if there's a deep-seated hatred, it may just be evidence that you yourself have never come to know Jesus. Listen to me. Because if you've truly come to know Jesus and you've, come to, you've been forgiven by Jesus, then the love of Jesus within you is going to compel you to forgive the other person regardless what he or she does. Because love and light go together just as hatred and darkness go together. Now, folks, I'm going to tell you something. Jealousy, bitterness, insecurity, hatred, this destroys relationships and it locks people up in a lonely prison. It led Cain to hate and murder his own brother. John's going to use him as an illustration of this in the next chapter. I think about how King Saul was so motivated by his animosity toward David that it drove him into madness. Or how Haman was so full of hatred for the Jews that he plotted their destruction. But in the end, he died on the very same gallows which he himself had built. Darkness had blinded his eyes. So if we're in the light, John says we'll prove it by loving our brothers and our sisters. And that kind of love is always practical. Don't have time to get to this, but you go through the New Testament sometimes and just underline or highlight the number of commands that speak to the one another. One another. Love one another. Serve one another. Forgive one another. There is such a large portion of the commands of the New Testament that cannot be kept in my life and your life if we're disconnected from the family of faith. You've got to be in community in order to be obedient to them. So for someone to say, well, it doesn't matter if I belong to a church. You don't have to be a Christian to go to church. Well, who told you that? You better read your Bible. Because the text says God's formed us for family. And the atmosphere of the family of God is this atmosphere of agape love. You say, I don't have it in me. I don't have the strength. How do I love? Listen to me. You surrender. You die to yourself and you surrender to the life of God in you as a believer. And you let Jesus love others through you. And that's where it's at, isn't it, folks? Let's stand for prayer this morning. John says, beloved, men and women whom I dearly love and men and women who are loved by God, I write to you no new commandment but an old commandment which which you've heard from the beginning. It's old because it has its roots in the law of God, but it's new, especially when you understand it in the light of what God has done through Jesus Christ. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Do you know Christ is your Savior this morning? If not, why not right there in an attitude of repentance and faith, confess your sin to God, ask him to forgive you, ask Christ to come into your heart and life, believe that he died, that he rose again. And the Bible says, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you call out to him this morning? Lord, with grateful hearts, we bow before you. And Lord, we're convicted, we're challenged. We've not heard anything that we've not heard before, Lord, but it's so easy for us to forget it. 
It's so easy for us, Lord, to often retreat into our own self-centered corners. But Lord, you've commanded us to love others the same way in which you've loved us. Selflessly, sacrificially. Left up to ourselves, we can't do it, Lord. But that's why you came to live within us through the person of your Holy Spirit. And as we yield our lives to you, Lord, may you love the people in our lives through us. That's true in our marriages. It's true in our home dynamic. It's true at work. It's true for the people in our lives, Lord, that seem to be the most difficult to love. Lord, it's not by accident that they're in our lives. It's for our discipleship so that you can love those people through us. Lord, may we simply be channels of your love in a loveless, cold world. May the atmosphere of agape love consume us as a body of believers. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said together, Amen.